Hello, and welcome to Right Now with Ralph Martin, a podcast where author, speaker, and worldwide renewal leader, Dr. Ralph Martin, shares what the Holy Spirit has placed on his heart for this moment. Words of encouragement from the Lord to strengthen you for such a time as this. Join us each week, wherever you get your podcasts, to find strength, hope, and courage for the Christian journey. And now, your host, Ralph Martin. Holiness, what's really possible? There's a scripture passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, and what it says is something very, very strong. It says, strive for that holiness without which no one will see God. Pretty strong. It's a little bit like the only people that really get to heaven are saints, Just think about that a little bit. Heaven wouldn't be heaven if the people there weren't totally purified of all the disordered desires and completely united in loving God and loving their neighbor with everything that's in them. And, you know, that means probably most of us will go to purgatory. But the fact is, is that none of us are going to see God. None of us are going to have that incredible happiness for all eternity without a total purification of our life. Now, what the saints actually say is don't wait for purgatory. And there's lots of problems with waiting for purgatory, which we'll get into in a few minutes. But right now, strive for that holiness without which no one can see God. A lot of us sometimes drift into a certain plateau in our spiritual life, like we know we're doing better than we used to be doing, And then we look over there and we say, gee, I'm I'm certainly doing better than those people over there. We can always find people to compare ourselves to to make us feel pretty good about where we are and what we're doing. And we can fall into a kind of comfortable Catholicism. It's a good Catholicism. It will get us to heaven Catholicism. But it's a comfortable Catholicism and it, it sells us far short of what the Lord really is willing to do for us, even here on this earth. And there's no no getting around it. The deeper our union with the Lord, the greater fruit there will be in our life. The greater happiness, the greater harmony with God's will, the, the greater the depth of our relationship, it's absolutely connected to the fruitfulness of our life. All the saints say that, and it's just absolutely true. There's another verse, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It says, he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, before the world was even created, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. The whole purpose of our existence is to be holy, is to be one with God, is to be completely transformed in love. That's, That's why we exist. That's really why we've been created. We've been created for union with God. And no matter how worldly we think we are, no matter how much we like to go shopping, no matter how much we like food or sex or football or whatever, the deepest truth about every single one of us is that we were created for union with God. That's the truth. That's the truth about why we are alive. We were created for union with God. Now, before we get too much further, let's ask ourselves, what's a good definition of holiness? Because when you hear the word holy, different kind of pictures come into our mind, like holy cards, statues of St. Michael, halos, uh, saying the rosary. And, And all those things are related to holiness, but they're not the essence. So what's the essence of holiness? The way Jesus put it was, what this is all about is loving God with our whole heart, our whole mind our whole soul, our whole strength, and our neighbor as ourself. So when we talk about growing in holiness, what we're really talking about is not necessarily adding more devotional practices to our life, although we probably will, but growing in holiness means growing in love. God is love, and to be holy is to be one with his love and to allow him to transform our somewhat stony, sluggish hearts into more and more hearts completely moved by love for God and love for our neighbor. 
Now, Therese of Lisieux, I, I, I can read French okay, but my pronunciation is terrible. I know that. This is, this is Therese's definition of holiness. Holiness consists in doing his will, in being what he wills us to be, who resists his grace in nothing. Now, sometimes we, we experience holiness as a burden that God is placing on us. Oh, no, i got to be holy, you know. Can, can I still have fun? Can I still drink beer? You know, can, you know, you know oh, darn it, what do I have to give up? You know, just sort of like negative connotations of growing in holiness. Well, holiness isn't a burden that God is trying to place on us. Holiness is a gift he's trying to give us. It, it's a freedom he wants to lead us into. It's a joy that he wants to be even deeper in our souls. It's a fruitfulness. You know, Jesus says, I want you to bear fruit, and I want your fruit to endure. I mean, that, that's what he wants from us. He says, you know, if you're bearing fruit, the Father's going to prune you so you bear even more fruit. So the purification of our soul is a sign that the Lord is pleased that we're bearing fruit, but he wants us to bear more fruit. The purification of the spiritual journey. Teresa of Avila gives another definition of holiness. She says, what it means to grow in holiness is to bring our will into union with God's will, to love what God loves, to desire what God desires, and to hate what God hates. Now, what does God hate? He hates what blocks his people from the happiness that he created them for. He hates sin. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, you've already, you always hear, you've heard a lot over your life about the call to holiness. And if my experience is reliable, and I think it is, as I've talked to so many people about this, a lot of times people respond with something like this. I know I'm called to holiness, but I'm going to try to identify some of the buts and take them away. So all we're left with is an unreserved yes to the call to holiness. So what are the common buts? Well, I know I'm called to holiness, but I'm just a lay person. You ever, ever, ever have a thought like that? You know, holiness is for priests and nuns and, you know, people live in monasteries, you know. I'm just a lay person. Well, let's think about that a little bit. You're just a lay person. Oh, just somebody created in the image of God? Is that all you are? A baptized lay person? Just somebody whom Jesus shed his blood for? Just somebody whom God the Father has taken to his heart as a beloved son or daughter? Just somebody who's a temple of the Holy Spirit? And you know what the Lord says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? If anybody destroys my temple, I will destroy them. That's how the Lord feels about us. That's how the Lord feels about baptized lay people. Just somebody destined for eternal glory? So, no more just the lay person. Just the lay person, wow. And one of, one of Dr. Kreef's famous lines is from C.S. Lewis, where he, he repeats what something C.S. Lewis said, where he said, if we could really see the human soul in each person, we'd either be tempted to bow down and worship them, so beautiful is the soul of the baptized, or if that soul has rejected God, we'd be tempted to flee in terror. How ugly is that soul? So the dignity of being a baptized layperson is pretty amazing. And the purpose of being created and the purpose of being baptized is so we can be completely one with God. We can be those saints that Dr. Kreef was talking about. Now, another thing we sometimes say is, you know, I know I'm called to holiness, but there's just so many pressures in my life right now. Uh, you know, I've got health considerations, I've got financial concerns, I've got retirement concerns, I've got teenage daughters concerns, I've got wayward sons and daughters concerns, I've got grandchildren concerns, I've got, you know, aching hips concerns, you know. There's just so much going on in my life, I just don't have time to strive for that holiness without which no one can see God. But it's precisely those pressures and difficulties in our life that are the means that God is providing to draw us to the point of letting go and letting God. We have to get to the point of saying, I can't handle this myself. 
I was never intended to handle it myself. The Lord is allowing these things in my life so I tap into that strength that comes from him and that trust and that surrender. That's the secret of not only enduring but flourishing in the midst of our difficulties. Now, another thing we sometimes say is, I know I'm called to holiness, but manana. I know I'm called to holiness, but later. It is so tempting to feel like there's going to be some better time in our life, somewhere in the future, where the circumstances will be more conducive to us sincerely seeking God. That's an illusion. That's a problem. We don't know how much longer we have. You know, um, Every day, people are appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. Young people are dying in motorcycle accidents. Middle-aged people are having unexpected heart attacks. Old people are dying as old people do eventually. Now, I don't know if uh, those, those, those doctors that you go to uh, have had the courage to tell you this, but every single person is terminally ill. Yes, Every single person here today is terminally we're, we're We're genetically programmed for death. There's something right now in our body that's going to kill us. Some of us know what it is. Some of us will only find out later. We're all going to die. And that's something that our culture tries to hide from us. The fact that we all have to die is because the death sentence has been pronounced on the human race. God said, if you do this, you're going to die. And the amazing thing is that Jesus dying in our place transforms earthly death into the gateway to heaven for those who die in his friendship. But for those who die unrepentant, those who die rebellious and disobedient and proudly resisting the mercy that God is offering will perish and what it says in Revelation chapter 21, they'll experience the second death, which is hell. So this is not a game. This is, you know, Christianity isn't an optional enrichment exercise for those who are spiritually inclined. It's not just for people who like spirituality or who are spiritually inclined. It's for every single person who exists on the face of the earth because there really is a heaven and there really is a hell and it really matters if we accept the gift of salvation or not. It really matters. Another thing that St. Bernard of Clairvaux said is that people who delay a wholehearted response to the call to holiness are stupid. I didn't say that. Take it up with St. Bernard. (laughs) He says it's really stupid to postpone the greater freedom, the greater love, the greater happiness, the greater harmony with God's will, the greater ability to be a blessing in situations we're in rather than another part of the problem. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Why wait for our soul to be healed? Why not right now? Why not right now so that the rest of our life can be a life of greater sensitivity to how the Holy Spirit wants to lead us and guide us and how he wants to use us and what he wants to say and not say in different situations? Now, there's one more thing. Sometimes us Catholics read Lives of the Saints, right? And we're both inspired, but sometimes we're perplexed and discouraged. We're inspired by the heroic sanctity that we see in the lives of the canonized saints, but sometimes we're also discouraged because we say, you know, I don't think I'm anywhere close to being able to do something like that. Like this St. Simeon the Stylite who sat on a pillar in the Egyptian desert for 20 or 30 years, we say, gee, that's impressive, but I don't feel called to that. Or or reading about these incredible fasting and penances and hair shirts and chains and, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, or walling yourself up in an anchorage's kind of, you know, hermitage you know, on the side of a church and say, I can't relate to that. Well, well Therese of Lezeux, the uh, little flower, felt the same way. She said, you know, I'd really like to be a saint, but I don't think I've got what it takes. I don't feel attracted to these great penances. I don't I don't feel like I can take these big steps I see in the spiritual journey. She says, I wonder if there's a shortcut for people like me. Hey, there is. I'm going to tell you about it in a few minutes. 
So what happens is we read the lives of these saints and we say, I don't think I'm going to be there by the time I die, so I'm going to aim for purgatory. Now, there's a couple problems with aiming for purgatory. One is that nowhere in the Catholic Bible does Jesus ever say aim for purgatory. You know what Jesus says? He sums up his entire teaching, Matthew chapter 6, other places as well. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, it doesn't mean like be God the Father, but be who you were created to be. Say yes to God's plan for your life. Say, say yes to your truest, deepest self. Say yes to the purpose of your creation. Say yes to God's glorious vision of who you are and who he created you to be. Say yes to that. Now, if by the time we die, we're not ready to see the Lord face to face, praise the Lord for purgatory. But what happens if we're aiming for purgatory and miss? I hear it's hell to miss purgatory. So aim for heaven, okay? I'm aiming for heaven, but if I don't get there, praise the Lord for purgatory, you know? But it's really dangerous to aim for purgatory. We don't always hit the targets we aim for. Now, John Paul II wrote a lot about holiness. In his mission encyclical, he says that the universal call to holiness is closely linked to the universal call to mission. Every member of the faithful is called to holiness and to mission. You know, our, our, our main concern for our sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and fellow parishioners and aunts and uncles and parents and strangers we meet on airplanes is for their eternal salvation. You know, it's good to pray for people's to be healed of their illnesses and to get good jobs and to find good marriage partners. That's all really important. But the main thing we should have our eye on is people dying in friendship with Christ. Because that's what it's all about. That's, that's the one thing necessary is to be with Jesus. That's it. And then the Pope goes on to say, I have no hesitation in saying that all our pastoral initiatives must be set in relationship to holiness. And then he goes on to say, the time has come to repropose wholeheartedly to everyone this high standard of ordinary Christian living. This isn't for super Catholics. This is what it means to be a Catholic. One of the founders of the Curcio movement, Bishop Juan Herbas, said that one of the things that's most weakening the Catholic Church today is what he called the minimalist corruption of the gospel. Asking from Catholics less than Jesus is asking them and offering to Catholics less than Jesus is offering them. We're selling people short, not by transmitting faithfully the real call of Jesus to a life of holiness and mission. Now, John Paul II goes on to say that in order for this to be practical, we really need to reconnect with the spiritual wisdom of the saints. He particularly mentions the doctors of the church. He mentions in, in his vision statement for the new millennium, Novo Millennio Eniunte, he mentions John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, Teresa of Lisieux, and to keep those Carmelites humble, he threw in Catherine of Siena, a Dominican. But there's also doctors of the church like Francis de Sales and Bernard de Clairvaux and St. Augustine who also have tremendous wisdom about the spiritual journey. What it means to be a doctor of the church is to not only be a saint, but to be a saint whom God has given a gift of wisdom and teaching for that's useful for the whole church. Now, I have a true confession here to make. When I was a senior at the University of Notre Dame, I, I, I was a philosophy major. But the more I studied philosophy, the more confused I got. Yes, we were trying to figure out whether the world existed or not, which is really a dumb place to be. But anyway, uh, and, and, and I started drifting away from the church, and I, I was confused about the church and about God. And a friend invited me to make a weekend retreat called the Curcio, uh, a renewal movement from Spain. And on that retreat, I, all I could say is that Jesus was there, and I had to make this difficult decision. If Jesus really is who he says he is, if he's really the word become flesh, if he's really the perfect image of the Father, if he's really the one that God has sent to lead us back to him, if he's really the Lord, the only sensible response to make to Jesus is to write a blank check, sign the check and give it to Jesus and let him fill in the amount. 
to make a half-hearted, lukewarm response to Jesus just isn't, isn't appropriate. It's maybe why he says in the book of Revelations that when you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. I mean, it's not appropriate to fit Jesus into our life. It's not appropriate to have him along with the great books. He's the Lord. And the only sensible response is total surrender, really. That's the only sensible response to someone who's the Lord. So by the grace of God, he gave me, he gave me the grace to repent, to humble myself, to go to confession, to be reconciled with the Lord and the church. But then a few weeks later, I knew that there was depth in the writings of these saints, and I started to read a book by John of the Cross. It was Ascent of Mount Carmel. I don't recommend that anybody start there. And about 60 or 70 pages into it, I, I said, I don't understand what he's talking about, and what I do understand sounds so negative. I just don't, I can't do this. And so I put it down. Then about 20 years later, uh, the bishop of, uh, the, the priest who's now the bishop of Lansing, Bishop Earl Boyer, encouraged me to get a master's degree in theology at Sacred Heart Seminary, where he was the academic dean. And in one of my Catholic spirituality classes, I had to read another book by John of the Cross called Spiritual Canticle. That's a good place to start, but this is a better place to start, the fulfillment of all desire. And all I can tell you, I was doing my homework in Zurich, Switzerland, on a, coming home from a trip. And I was reading Spiritual Canticle, and like all the lights went on. It's like, whoa, everything I couldn't figure out how it got integrated in my life, including being a teenager in love, was getting integrated. It was all kind of coming together and making sense. And, and I began to read everything John wrote, everything Teresa wrote, everything. You know, I, I just began to devour these doctors of the church in the area of spirituality. And this time the Lord was helping me get it. And as I was reading them, I was saying, you know, I grew up with this understanding about all the separate schools of spirituality, Ignatian, Franciscan, Dominican, Carmelite, Salesian. But as I was reading these doctors of the church, uh, I was saying, you know what? They're all talking about the same reality. They're all talking about the same healing of the human soul by the Holy Spirit. And they all bring their unique insights. What if you could ever put together in an orderly way this wisdom, you'd have the most amazing roadmap for the spiritual journey. So that, that's what I did with, with the book, Fulfillment of All Desire. It took me 10 years to do it, so I am going to tell you about it. And, and it's really a valuable work for introducing us to all these wisdom of the saints. Okay, now John Paul II says, once you read these doctors of the church, you're going to discover four principles that govern the spiritual life. I'm going to go through those four principles, and as much as we have time for it, I'm going to Go, go through. Principle number one, the spiritual journey is totally dependent on the grace of God. This is good news. Because I was trying to make myself holy and it wasn't working that well. There, there, there's something else we need to discover about depending on the grace of God, seeking the grace of God, drawing down the grace of God, responding to the grace of God. Second principle is even though the spiritual journey is totally dependent on the grace of God, our effort is necessary. It's not sufficient, but it's necessary. Third principle, there are some painful dimensions to the process of transformation that John of the Cross describes as dark nights. I hope we get to that principle. Fourth principle, even though some effort is necessary, even though there's some painful dimensions to the process of transformation, there's no more worthwhile effort to be made. There's no more worthwhile pain to be endured because it, where it leads us, even in this life, even on this earth, to a place of deeper and deeper abiding union with God, out of which comes increased fruitfulness in our whole life. Okay, let's take those now one at a time. Principle number one, spiritual journey is totally dependent on the grace of God. Now, here's where St. Therese comes in. I told you how she had this tremendous desire to be a saint, but she didn't think she had what it took. And she didn't think that she could do what these other great saints that she was reading about did. She says, I'm not attracted to these penances. I wonder if there's a shortcut. God the Father showed her there's a shortcut. What the shortcut is... 
place yourself in the arms of Jesus and rest on his heart and let him work in you and let him love you. Now, for us men, we may prefer the image of the beloved disciple John resting on the heart of Jesus. What does that signify? It signifies such confidence, such intimacy, such security in in being loved, such security in being in the hands of somebody who's totally reliable and totally faithful and totally true. It's, It's that resting on the heart of Jesus. Now, another thing the saints say is that, you know what? There's room on the heart of Jesus for everybody. John hasn't cornered his heart. And this reminds me of a little experience I had. We have one son and five daughters, grandchildren, you know. And so anyway, one time I was reading a story to a couple of my daughters, and they were on my lap, and a couple other daughters came in, and they felt probably a little jealous or something. I don't know. So they, they kind of started jostling, pushing the other daughters off and trying to get in my lap. I said, wait, wait a second, girls. There's enough daddy for everybody. And so we, we made room for all four of them. And, and there's enough room on the heart of Christ for everybody. And what the saints say is that the intimacy of relationship with the Lord isn't limited from the Lord's side. It's only limited from our side. It's we're the ones who put the limit. So one of the things I hope from this talk is we take off any limits we placed on what we think is possible in our relationship with the Lord. We take off any limits we placed on what we think God can do with us. We take off any limits, any ceiling we place on, on our own depth of union with the Lord and just really take off the limits and just say yes and just keep on saying yes. That was another part of Therese's definition. Holiness means saying yes to whom God created us to be, who resists his grace in nothing. So the secret to growth in the spiritual life is to resist his grace in nothing. Just say yes. You know, we have bumper stickers up in Michigan that say just say no, you know, to drugs and things like that. We need some bumper stickers that say just say yes to the grace of God. Just say yes to the light of the Holy Spirit. Just say yes to the word of God. Just keep saying yes and allow the Lord to work in our souls. Now, Therese also illustrates how this applied in her own situation of weakness. She writes in the story of a soul, I've been in the convent for almost seven years. She entered just short of her 16th birthday. She died at the age of 24, suffocating from tuberculosis. At the end, only one half of one lung was still working, and gangrene was setting in on her legs. So she only had a year to go, a year or two to go before she died. And what she writes is this. She says, every time I've gone to pray, even after receiving communion these last seven years, I've fallen asleep. When I read that, I woke up. I said, wow, you can have sleepy prayer times and somehow become a saint? How does this happen? This is relevant. This is encouraging. And she says, you'd think I'd be absolutely discouraged, but I'm not. She says, the reason why I'm not discouraged is that I know that God loves me even while I'm sleeping. How's that for confidence in God's love? There's a line in one of the Psalms says, the Lord gives to his beloved while she sleeps. So the next time you're dozing off in prayer time, remember that Psalm and claim it. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. And she says, I know this is true because I see that parents, when they put their children to sleep, still love them. Well, as a parent, I might say, sometimes when we put our children to sleep, we love them even more. Their, their screaming was driving me crazy. I was losing my holiness. Thank God they finally stopped and gone to sleep. And then she also said, I see that surgeons, when they're doing life-saving surgery, put their patients to sleep. So Therese's confidence wasn't in the quality of her prayer times. Therese's confidence was in the power of God's love to take her sleepy prayer times and turn them into something beautiful for God. But there's another lesson here she doesn't explicitly mention, but you can see it. And this is a big secret of growing in holiness. Just keep showing up. Even though she fell asleep in her prayer time, she kept showing up. Just keep putting one step in front of the other. Don't give up. Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved. We need to set ourselves for the long haul. Growth in the spiritual life isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. We need to pace ourselves. We need to know how far off the finish line is. And we need to just keep showing up. 
Now, principle number two, our effort is necessary. It's not sufficient, but it's necessary. What kind of effort? Well, the effort of paying attention to God. The Lord says, when you seek me with all your heart, I will let myself be found by you. The Lord wants to give us gifts of deep, intimate friendship, but just like in a human relationship, you don't want to pour out your soul to somebody who's not listening. (laughs) You don't want to pour out your heart to somebody who's texting and looking at their cell phone, right? Don't you feel a little, little like, well, I don't think they're really interested. And so you kind of stop. So we need to pay attention to God. And what this really means is taking time each day for personal prayer. Now, I told you I think the most important decision I ever made in my life was humbling myself and swallowing my pride and repenting and converting and going to confession on that retreat and giving the Lord a blank check. But I think the second most important decision I ever made happened, again, several weeks later, where I knew that there was going to be a fluctuation in my emotions. Sometimes I'd experience God's love and presence. Sometimes I wouldn't. But I really knew that this relationship was the most real and most important thing in my life. and I needed to structure into my life a regular time of personal prayer. And I started doing that. And I've had my share of sleepy prayer times, Distracted prayer times. Now, this is encouraging, too. Teresa of Avila writes in her story of her life, she says, for the first 13 years I was in the convent, my my mind was like wild horses going in every direction. I couldn't focus without spiritual reading. Well, hey, do spiritual reading. You know, read something that could increase your desire for God or give you greater insight into who he is, and then put it down and just be quiet and be with the Lord. Alternate spiritual reading and, and, and time of prayer. And it's, it's a real help. It's, it's, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's, it's kind of easy. And, and a lot of people these days have that tremendous little resource called Magnificat. That's a tremendous help, you know? Uh, you know, it gives a little structure to things, you know, a little, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's really helpful. And, But I'm going to tell you something that Francis de Sales said to busy Catholic lay people. He said, he wrote the first book of Catholic spirituality directed towards Catholic lay people. And he said, busy Catholic lay people should pray an hour a day. Yeah, some of you almost choked, I know. You say, what? How? Why? Well, he gives the reasons. He says, How do you expect in the midst of all your complexity of business life and family life and relationships and what's going on in the world to be able to be in those situations with a a quietness of soul and a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and a good grounding in what God's word really says about things unless you spend some significant time with him every day? So if you're not used to praying an hour a day, don't start there, but I would encourage you to grow into a longer prayer time. Uh, maybe start with 15 or 20 minutes and maybe move to a half hour. And if you never get beyond that, that's okay. But that's really, really, really helpful and really, really important. It really, really is. And if you can grow to an hour, that, that, would, be, that would be good. Now, like I said, I've had my share of sleepy prayer times, distracted prayer times. I've, I've had looking at my watch prayer times. You ever have any of those prayer times when you look at your watch and say, it's only been 10 minutes? What the heck? And I got an hour of adoration I signed up for. It's only been 10 minutes. What am I going to do? Just be there. Just be there. Just drag your tired body, your distracted mind, your sleepy head, and just be there facing in God's direction and let him love you. Now, what else can we do? We can turn away from those things that block or slow down the work of the Holy Spirit in our soul. That means turning away from sin. Now, what do the saints say about sin? The first thing they say is that sin never helps. Because even though it seems obvious, the very nature of temptation is to propose to us that, hey, give in to this temptation, you'll feel better. You know, you're, you're feeling financial stress. Can I borrow some money from your company? You'll feel better. Uh, you're being tempted by sexual temptation. Give in. You'll feel, you'll feel better. Uh, you, you hate your neighbor. Yeah, give in to it. You'll feel better. The very nature of temptation is to propose to us that sin will help solve a, a problem we're having. 
and it may provide momentary relief, but it damages the soul and leads us to a greater uneasiness in the depth of our soul. Catherine of Siena says the greatest suffering on human life isn't physical pain, but it's the anguish of soul that comes from being in opposition to God's will. That, that, that terror, that anguish, that insecurity that comes from being in opposition to God's will. So the first step the saints tell us to do is we need to turn away from serious sin. Now, not too long ago, if you use the term serious sin, most Catholics would know what you would be talking about. But nowadays, that's not necessarily the case. Because for many years now, we've been hearing things like this from the world and from the world within the church saying, oh, the church is too hung up on this sexual morality stuff. God's really not so concerned about these little personal things. He's concerned about the big world issues. He's concerned about peace and justice. He's concerned about the environment. He's concerned about recycling. You know, I mean, I mean, in some places, that's the greatest sin, right? You know, not to recycle, you know? Okay. So, so anyway, it, it's true that God's concerned about all these big issues and peace and justice, but it's still true that he's concerned about these most personal of decisions that we make that most deeply impact our own minds, souls, and bodies and the minds, souls, and bodies of other people. So when I'm talking to folks about this, I, I, I really need to do a little review, and I'm going to do it right now in just a few minutes, and remind you what God's word says about those sins that will actually exclude us from the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, don't let anybody deceive you. There are so many warnings against deception in the New Testament, both from the mouth of Jesus and from the teaching of the apostles. Don't let anybody deceive you. Even in the New Testament church, there was deception going around about all these things. He says, don't let anybody deceive you. The immoral, idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, Thieves, greedy, drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers will enter the kingdom of God. What could be clearer? And we've got to remember that there's been a lot of doubt sowed amongst Catholics today about the truth and reliability of God's word. And you know what Vatican II really teaches about our approach to God's word? It's in the Constitution on Sacred Revelation, section 11. It says, everything asserted by the sacred authors should be considered to be asserted by the Holy Spirit and to teach firmly, faithfully, and without error those truths which God wished to consign to the sacred writings for the sake of our salvation. 1 Corinthians 6 is there out of love for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is there for our salvation, and we neglect it at our peril. It isn't like Jesus said some comforting things and he said some mean things, you know, like he had a mean streak, you know. no. Everything Jesus and the apostles teach is out of profound love and profound knowledge about what the true path to happiness is. So people who hold on to these grave sins and don't repent are in danger of not entering the kingdom of God, no matter what our culture is telling us, no matter what our sons and daughters are telling us. And that's why we need to be absolutely clear about what the truth is about human happiness, what the truth is about salvation. And we have to have the courage, if people are wanting us to implicitly agree with them that there's no big deal to be living with somebody out of marriage, say, well, you know, hey, I love you, you know, I I really care about you, but the, the truth is, is that that's really damaging, not only to your future prospects of marital happiness, all the studies show, but it's also endangering your eternal salvation. And it's one of those things that could exclude you from the kingdom of God. And if they say to us, well, you know, if you love me unconditionally, you'd accept what I'm doing, we need to say back to them, because I love you unconditionally, I'm saying to you what I'm saying to you. And I'm not going to tell you a lie. I'm not going to set you on a path that I know is going to lead to your destruction. I'm going to tell you the truth that's revealed to us about the purpose of human sexuality and its significance for our eternal salvation. Okay. But this isn't an isolated text. As Mark Twain said, It isn't those parts of Scripture that are really hard to interpret, like certain things in the book of Revelation and things like that, that that most disturb me. It's those things that are so clear that most disturb me. What could be clearer than these clear assertions that the church teaches in Vatican II 
are asserted by the Holy Spirit and are teaching firmly, faithfully, and without error those truths which we need to know for our salvation. Okay, Galatians chapter 5. Paul says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not enter the kingdom of God. This isn't a fake game where everybody gets a trophy at the end. This isn't a fake game where no matter what you do and how you live, everybody ends up okay. It's not. And that's because the Lord is not looking for robots. He's not looking for slaves. He's looking for friends. He's looking for love. What this is all about is the marriage feast of the Lamb. We're heading towards a marriage. And we know in a human marriage, if there's compulsion, it's grounds for annulment. It's no real marriage. There can be no real marriage and no real friendship without the free choice to accept the love that's being offered to us and respond with our own love. That means the Lord takes an incredible risk by respecting human freedom, but he does. And that's why the scripture says, there is so much joy in heaven when one sinner repents. There is so much joy in heaven when one person accepts the offer of mercy and forgiveness. Talking about mercy and forgiveness, the truth about mercy is that every time in the, in the Gospels where Jesus extends mercy to somebody, he expects repentance. And we've fallen into this kind of fog. It's another big deception. Have you heard anybody ever say, God is so merciful, he'll never let anybody be lost? Well, the first part of that's true. God is so merciful. The second part isn't. Because there has to be a response to mercy. There has to be a yes to mercy. There has to be repentance in response to mercy. When Jesus caught the woman in adultery, people disappeared. He asked the woman, is there anybody here left to condemn you? The woman said, there's nobody here to condemn me, Lord. And Jesus says, well, I'm not going to condemn you either, but go and do not sin anymore. Or how about the story of the prodigal son, the great parable of God's mercy? The son left the father's house. He squandered his gifts on loose living with prostitutes. He got so low, he wished he could eat the food of pigs, which for a Jew is really, really low. But then it says he came to his senses. He says, I know what. I'll repent. I'll go to my father's house. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against him. It wasn't until the prodigal son changed his direction. It wasn't until the prodigal son repented and changed his direction and returned to his father's house and asked forgiveness that the incredible love of the father's house could come flowing into his life. Or how about the man who for 38 years could never be the first one into the pool when the angel stirred the water for healing? Jesus took pity on him and he healed him. But then it says he sought him out to tell him something important. What did Jesus tell him? See, you've been healed, but do not sin anymore, lest something worse happen to you. There has to be a response to mercy. Okay, now after we turn away from serious sin, and sometimes when people hear what serious sin, they say, gee, I didn't know that was serious sin, and they're able to stop right away. Or sometimes they become a slave to sin, like St. Augustine was. So we got saints that match everybody's condition. St. Augustine was a slave to sexual sin. He even fathered a, a, a child with his mistress. And when he wanted to turn to the Lord, he found out he couldn't. He was actually enslaved. He was addicted. But he also said that even though I was truly a slave, I was responsible for having gotten to that point by a whole series of free decisions I made to repeat these gravely wrong things earlier in my life. But eventually the Lord, as he cried out for God's mercy, set him free. Now, once you get free of serious sin, a lot of people feel like they've arrived, and we have arrived at a wonderful, wonderful place. But the saints also say there's lesser sins that don't block us from the kingdom of God, but are slow down the process. Venial sins. Now, the saints make an important distinction between what they call inadvertent venial sins and advertent venial sins. Inadvertent venial sins, as Teresa of Avila says, it's like when the proverb says, the just person falls seven times a day. 
The person's living a, a, a righteous life, a holy life, but these little things kind of keep popping out, you know? We're not premeditating them, we're not planning them, but they're wounds of our fallen nature. A little impatient remark, a little momentary indulgence in a bad thought, a, a little embarrassed white lie. And, and because those things aren't being willed, they're no big deal. They'll get less over time. But the saints say that advertent venial sin is significant. It really slows down the process of transformation. And this is how Teresa of Avila defines it. She says, it's when we say to ourselves, I know the Lord doesn't want me to do this, but I really like doing it. And I know I'm not going to go to hell if I do it. I'm not going to go to jail if I do it. I won't be kicked out of my family if I do it. So I'm really going to do it. And Teresa says, even though it's a little thing, it's no little thing to freely choose to offend the Lord, even in a small matter. So he makes a very, she makes a very practical suggestion. She says, make a resolution that you never want to freely choose to offend the Lord, even in a small matter. I must admit, I was careless about venial sin. My wife tried to tell me I was careless about venial sin. <laughs> She's sitting right over there. And she was right. But being a man, I had to hear it from somebody else. So anyway, Teresa of Avila helped me and confirmed the wisdom of my wife. Okay. Now this next thing, I didn't know I had it, but I had it. I had a spiritual disease and it was undiagnosed and I didn't know what it was until I read Francis de Sales. He talks about affection for sin. He says, you may no longer be committing a particular sin you did in the past. You may be, nevertheless, though, fantasizing about a future sin that you haven't committed, but you maybe would like to. And he says, that's affection for sin. He says, you need to ask the Lord to show you if you're nourishing any affection or nostalgia for a past sin, any wishful thinking or fantasizing about a future sin, and release it to the Lord. And he gives two examples to show us what he means. He says, when the Israelites were brought out of slavery from Egypt into the desert, moving to the promised land, they were physically out of Egypt, but their hearts and their minds and their nostalgia was still back in Egypt. Remember when they came to Moses and said, Moses, we're getting really tired of these boring daily miracles, you know? Same old miraculous manner, every single morning, you know? Same old miraculous quail every single night. You know, we, we, we're missing the leeks and the garlic and the melons we used to have in Egypt. Moses must have said something like, ay, ay, ay. But Teresa Avila says a journey that could have taken eight days took 40 years because they were going around in circles. And Francis says that's sometimes how it's with us when we hold on to an affection for sin. He gives one more example. He talks about a man who's extremely allergic to eating melons. The doctor tells him, you got to completely give up eating melons or you're going to stop breathing one of these days. So the guy says, well, I don't want to stop breathing, so I'm going to give up eating melons. But hey, I can still go down to the fruit market, you know. You know, I can still hang out at the melon stand. I, I, I can still smell them. I can still touch them. I, I can still talk to the lucky people who can still eat melons. I just got to keep a little door open because maybe sometime in the future I'll be able to eat melons again. We've got to close some doors. We've got to close some doors in the past. We've got to close some doors in the future. We only need to go through one door, the door which is Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the door. And the sheep that go in and out of me get good food and good drink, my own body and blood, and the living waters of the Holy Spirit. Really important. So if you're nurturing Nostalgic memory of past sin, wishful thinking about future sin, any affection for sin, release it to the Lord. It's a great freedom. And if it comes back, just keeps turning it back to the Lord and keep going forward. Okay, two last things. Uh, temptation. What do the saints say about temptation? Believe the scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There's no test that comes your way that isn't common to humanity, and the Lord will not let you be tested beyond your strength but along with the test or temptation, he'll give you the grace to endure it or he'll get you out of it. Now, sometimes I must admit, I'll talk to the Lord and say, Lord, have you done a recent strength test? I hope you're not going on last year's retreat strength test, you know, but it's absolutely true. I can testify to that. 
What do the saints say about how to defeat temptation? They say the very first instant you become aware of it, label it. That's a wicked thought. I don't want it. Reject it. And the longer you delay, the more difficult it becomes. And a lot of people today have got into dallying with temptation, you know, playing with temptation, like, well, you know, I'm not really planning to uh, kill my neighbor, but, oh, it's really enjoyable to think about it for a while. And Jesus tells us he's not just about external conformity to the law. It's not just a matter of not killing, but it's also a matter of not hating. It's not just a matter of not committing adultery. It's, not, it's also a matter of not entertaining lustful thoughts in our heart. It's about the healing of the soul and the becoming less double-minded and more single-minded. Uh, and so Catherine of Siena says we're waging a spiritual battle with a two-edged sword. One edge of the sword is love for virtue, the other edge of the sword is hatred for sin. And so when temptation comes our way, identify it, say that's wicked thought, I don't want it, hate it, and love virtue. I'm going to end right now with a final example. It's a story somebody told me about Bedouins in the desert. They travel around with their goatskin tents and their, their flock of uh, cam- camels, and then these terrible dust storms come up in the desert. And the dust storms are really terrible things, and so... The, the Bedouins set up their tents real quickly and get in, but the camels don't like to be left out in the dust storm either. So they try very hard to also get in the tent. And what they say, if the camel gets in the tent, it's trouble. It's kicking and biting and stinking, and, and pretty soon the Bedouins are out of the tent and the camels have possession. So what they say is you get in the tent, but you keep an eagle eye on the tent flaps. And then as soon as you see a camel's nose come under the tent flap, Kick it real hard, because if you delay, the camel's going to get into the tent. So anyway, we didn't get to principle number three, but I, I, it, a lot of great stuff I couldn't cover is in the book, Fulfilling All Desire. Uh, if you go to our website, uh, renewalministries.net, we're also offering a free booklet. You can just check out what else is there. But uh, thank you very much, and God bless you. This podcast is brought to you by Renewal Ministries, part of the Renewal Podcast Network. If you are enjoying this podcast, we invite you to help us spread the word by leaving us a rating or review, following or subscribing to this podcast, or sharing on social media. Until next time, this is Right Now with Ralph Martin. Ralph Martin